Welcome to OnAmp. Oh no, not another marketing podcast. I'm your host, Will Davis. I'm the Chief Marketing Technology Officer and co-founder at RightSource with over 20 years experience in the marketing space. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from strategy to content to MarTech platforms and everything in between. You'll hear honest talk about successes and failures with our guests, plenty of analogies, maybe a couple jokes, and a lot of data points along the way. So we needed to fix the story. You know, when you're a startup, everybody kind of just joins around the mission of growth. And you didn't need to spend a lot of time figuring out how to tell your story. But as we were scaling the business and bringing in new people and bringing in new leaders, we had to have a more consistent story. Welcome. With me today, Chris Sachs, CEO and founder, ThinkStack. Chris, great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So we always like to start with a little fun fact. Chris, uh, tell us something about yourself people may not know. So I always wanted to be a marine biologist. I started scuba diving at the age of 12, which was difficult because you had to learn all of the scuba diving tables and metrics and math wasn't my strong point at that point in my life. But yeah, I've been scuba diving since I was 12 years old and still kind of wish I could do it, although I've never been very good at science. Ah, there you go. So math, science, and, and a life under the sea, but that's kind of taken you to a different technical area, which is uh, your work at ThinkStack. So tell us a little bit about ThinkStack. Sure. So ThinkStack was founded eight years ago. We are a cybersecurity and infrastructure business uh, that serves credit unions, banks, healthcare companies, anyone that has highly regulated needs. And we work with them to help build infrastructures and cybersecurity platforms that are ready for the future. Definitely a uh, hot topic these days. I know folks have been focused on cybersecurity for really the last decade or so, but the last few years, that's really heated up in a, a place you've gotten into. But you come from a little bit of maybe a non-traditional background when you think about kind of cyber and technology and IT. Tell our audience a little bit about that. Sure. So my background has been more of an entrepreneur, not so much a, a technologist. My first company endeavor was in the trucking space. So I did tractor trailer sales and um, various other services within the trucking industry. And that really allowed me to learn how you sell package services to businesses um, that are not in a particular area. So in other words, we would sell a truck, a trailer, a driver, a maintenance package to a deli company um, because uh, trucking is not their expertise. Deli is. Um, so along the way, I had an opportunity to join a small uh, tech startup and was able to take the same business model into technology. So if you were to go into a bank Financial services is their expertise, not technology and cybersecurity. So how do you package that together uh, with the products and services that you need um, and then allow the expert to do that? So we serve banks and credit unions who are experts in their field, and they allow us to package the cybersecurity and infrastructure services and products that they need and allow us to focus on that while they focus on what they're good at. So that's interesting, whether it's trucking or cybersecurity, really thinking about how do you uh, keep focused on your own business's expertise and then outsourcing other things, whether that is, you know, trucking or cybersecurity or, or folks like us who do marketing or outsource sales or whatever that, you know, CPAs. So really the focus is on helping businesses stay true to their core and augmenting things where they may not have the expertise uh, with some outside experts. Exactly right. Very cool. So, you know, how did that all start? What made you jump from trucking to technology? Trucking is a sleepy industry. I enjoyed it. Uh, it continues to grow. If you look at online retail, 
trucking is one of the hottest industries that we have. And it's mm-hmm. an industry that frankly, people don't pay very much attention to. That having been said, it wasn't as glamorous <laughs> as maybe some other industries. I did a lot in the trash business um, and and some other things. And at, at just at some point in my life, I said, is this what I want to do forever? And Tony Soprano did a lot in the trash business and that did. worked out well for him. He did. Yeah. No. And, and, and I have nothing against it. In fact, the, the people in trucking were awesome. And, the, and there's many uh, circumstances where I miss the families and the people that were involved in trucking. Um, but I wanted to get into something that felt more future proof for me. Um, and so technology was more of a, a, a vertical that I thought I could see myself in for, you know, 30 or 40 years. Cool. Yeah. And our audience can't see this, obviously, but uh, Chris is currently wearing a shirt that says entrepreneurial spirit and has a light bulb on it. So um, <laughs> definitely just hearing about some of your background, that's a great embodiment of the way you've approached things. Absolutely. And that's that's part of our culture uh, at ThinkStack. Um, today, in fact, we did a, a session on how do you take ownership uh, inside of your own job for our company. So uh, we shut down the business each year for a week and we do a series of training workshops. And, and one of those was on the continued use of our values. And one of those is that entrepreneurial spirit. So as each and every individual is working with our client, understanding that they have the freedom and the rights to think of that interaction and their job role as their own company, how would they structure that interaction? How would they make sure that client wants to work with them and um, give them the freedom to to build a system that works for them within the constructs of our of, of our businesses is really important. Very cool. So that whole kind of revisiting things um, for a week and kind of shutting down the business leads me to think about different ways people approach business thinking, which of course gets me to one of the topics we want to talk about today, something you're passionate about, uh, which is design thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So when we, in fact, this goes back to my days in trucking. Um, when I first started working in trucking, uh, I found a client who hauled trash. And uh, one of the first things we did, which was pretty exciting, was to go in and look at what that entailed. So I went to the landfill and I watched them uh, pick up trash and I watched them haul that uh, and looked at the interaction that the truck driver had with the landfill and, and tried to really put myself in the shoes of of that uh, driver and that individual. And we then took that story back to the trailer manufacturer uh, and came up with some innovations to the trailer that allowed them to improve uh, how much they were able to haul, uh, improve their profitability, and then allowed this uh, client to buy trailers from us into perpetuity. So what I didn't realize at the time was that that was design thinking. You know, it started with looking at the, the customer, who in this case was the truck driver. Um, and we were looking for ways to basically journey map the process to understand what it looked like uh, and find ways that we could improve on some of the issues they were having, which was speed to load and weight. And so really made that a part of our ongoing practice. And that's how we helped clients in the trucking business. And then when I got into technology, I was a non-technology person. So I don't understand all the nomenclature and the verbiage that people were using. So I forced the engineers to leverage a process of looking at the map. So using journey maps as a way to communicate how data flows through a network look for opportunities there. So I was able to translate that same way of thinking into the technology practices that we have. Um, and now the funny part is this spinning off to become a completely separate focus. So we've become so good at design thinking that organizations that work with us want us to 
to teach them how to design things so they can leverage that in their own organizations. That's really interesting. And for those who don't know as much maybe about design thinking, can you summarize that approach quickly? Because I think that will help people understand some of what you all do. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the quickest way is to just say human-centered design, right? So there, there are lots of different stories about who invented design thinking. Most people think of David and Tom Kelly, the founders of IDEO, as kind of the ones that really brought it into the mainstream. Um, but it was a it was a terminology that was leveraged in architecture at a very early on, which was people were building functions into buildings, but not thinking about the human interaction of that function and finding that by leading only with function, you were often not thinking about how that was going to interact with the human being. So you can, like an easy visual is if you created a sidewalk in a courtyard, you'll often see the pathways where people uh, find the most efficient route. And that's where all the grass is dead because the sidewalk didn't follow that same path. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. forcing yourself to think about that before you build the sidewalk is really important. So it really goes back to that human element of design in, in a process or a product. And I imagine that's pretty powerful in your business, too, because as you said earlier, coming into it as a non-technologist, I imagine your clients can relate to the fact that you're thinking about it more from kind of a business and human interaction standpoint than a ones and zeros standpoint. Absolutely. And most of the people in the organization, now it's starting to change, but most of the people in organizations that we're working with who are making the ultimate decisions are non-technologists as well. Mm -hmm. So this gives them the ability to feel more comfortable about the decisions they're making because they understand the outcome in the terms of the human experience. Very cool. And we talked about this a little bit off air, but I can imagine as you first started doing this and going to market, it might have been a little confusing, right? You said you're talking to non-technologists, you're talking to people that maybe have not gone through a process like this before. So they hear the word design and they think maybe marketing or advertising or architecture. I wish I could tell you that we've perfected the answer question. I don't (laughs) think we have, but I'll tell you the way that we're grappling with it right now is to lead more with our services. So explaining to people that we are a cybersecurity company, explaining that we're an infrastructure company, and then later on in the process, hitting them with, but the way that we differentiate ourselves in that area is that we use design thinking as a way to deliver our services. Um, When we led with the design thinking, it destroyed the conversation. So Mm -hmm. we've had to flip the script a little bit and have that become the differentiator as we continue our conversations as opposed to the lead. That's interesting. Yeah. And you think about, okay, this is our differentiator. It feels really important. It feels really valuable. We want to get it out there quickly, early in the conversation, but too early, it seems to maybe cause a little more confusion. They don't know what you do, which is invaluable. Exactly. Cool. So you and I were talking too about uh, an example of some of the kind of confluence of design thinking and creativity. And you mentioned an example uh, related to UC Berkeley. I think it would be really cool to hear about that. Yeah, sure. So this is starting to become uh, a topic with a lot of uh, art and design uh, universities. So Micah locally and UC Berkeley, people are looking at uh, how impactful cybersecurity and data privacy are in our lives Mm -hmm. and how do we represent that through art so uc berkeley has a contest right now going on that is looking for representations of cybersecurity in art and somebody brought up this context of journey mapping and where that fits in is you know while we are certainly not artists what we're looking at is cybersecurity impacts every human experience and we need to find the right balance of cybersecurity friction with the ease of use 
in technology. <laughs> and art can be art and journey mapping and design thinking can be a great way to represent that. And I think it's just, it's, it's so topical. I mean, think, uh, you know, all the Facebook, uh, penalties were just announced with their data privacy. And, um, we as a human race rely so significantly on the apps that we use and we give so much of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, but thinking about the consequences of what we're giving and always balancing ease of use and this great functionality, um, with where does that start to make me feel uncomfortable? And I think art is a really interesting way to represent what we're going through as a society right now. So yeah, that's, so that's something that we're looking at to try to partner possibly with a local artist to see if we could, you know, join that conversation. Very interesting. Yeah. And you touched on a subject that both marketers and security folks look at, which is, you know, data and privacy and how much are you exposing and how targeted can you get? So as marketers, it's sort of a blessing and a curse that we can really, really laser focus on, particularly online, but also offline, you know, a certain type of persona, a certain age range, a certain income area, a certain level of interest. And you can get, I mean, downright creepy with the ability to target and serve ads to people, but at the same time, at what cost to sort of their experience and their comfort as a user. And uh, there's a trade-off there, right, too, because... The flip side of that, people throw up their ad blockers and don't want to see ads at all, but then the internet stops being free. <laughs> so, right. you know, there's there's a whole lot of friction in those different areas to say, you know, would you rather have irrelevant ads or relevant ads? I'd probably rather have relevant ads. People want no ads, but that's not realistic unless you want to pay for all these services. So there's there's kind of that that tipping point of security, privacy, what you're willing to exchange. And to me, that also aligns with some of the conversations you and I had about things like banks, right? So you can make the most secure bank in the world that no one can walk into. That's not very user-friendly. So what are the sort of security exchange points you're willing to give? Yeah, I, th I think friction is the key word there. So one of my favorite stories, so that I attended a class at Stanford. Stanford's doing a tremendous amount of research around friction and you know where is good friction where is bad friction and and what is the right balance and one of the stories they told that really resonated with me was about coinstar so you know the machine that you go to the mm -hmm. grocery store and you dump your coins in um when when they originally developed that they are able to count the coins almost immediately and so people were dumping the coins in and it would come back and it would say you've, you've dumped in a hundred dollars but it did so so quickly that people didn't have trust in the machine, <laughs> that there was no possible way it could count this quickly. <laughs> so they added like a 17 second delay into the software that was not needed whatsoever, <laughs> um, but that forced people to think about it differently and said, oh, okay, this thing must be counting my coins very accurately. It takes a little bit of time to give me my results. And so now I trust the the deliverable. That's and wild. You know, when you think about banking and financial services in particular, and you think about them being delivered digitally, there have to be some pieces of friction. We're all smart enough to know that we want cybersecurity and data privacy, um, but we don't want it to completely impact and derail the experience. So you have to find the right balance of giving them enough friction that they feel like you're taking care of their data but not so much that it becomes an experience that t is too time consuming. Yeah, that's really interesting to sort of create that. Okay, this thing's moving too quickly. It can't possibly be right. So we're going to insert that delay into the software itself right. just so people have a better kind of human experience. Yep. 
that's pretty wild. So jumping around a little bit, because, uh, you know, a lot of people listen to this to hear about marketing and kind of different perspectives on marketing. I love to get the take of marketers in the trenches, but also kind of CEOs who say, you know, from 100,000 feet, what should we be doing? So how do you guys market ThinkStack? So the biggest way that we market ThinkStack today is through workshops and events, getting out in front of people as a service industry. Our product is our people. And we have great people. So how do we showcase our people in the most effective way? And for us, uh, we've found that uh, events are a really great way to do that. So we will often conduct small and large group workshop settings um, within very specific industries that we serve. So we've been narrowly focused on our vertical industry, which has allowed us to create inroads with a lot of different associations within the credit union and banking industries, um, which gives us the audiences necessary to deliver really good content. So we go and do um, our, we have various different workshops, but we go do really fun, unique workshops with those industries. And we tend to find people gravitate to us towards there. And then, and from there, they can be really great opportunities where you have existing clients that are attending the workshop, introducing you to new prospects. Um, so that's been a really uh, good method for us. Great. Yeah. And you were talking earlier before, um, you know, one of the challenges I think every business goes through is creating content, right? Because content is, whether it's workshop content, right? That's one type of content, written content, audio, podcasts, videos, all that kind of stuff. That's really kind of the fuel for marketing. And you had mentioned to me that you guys started blogging actually because a client told you you needed to, which was really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So the workshop piece itself is great to find one or two people. What the workshop marketing approach lacks is the ability to find people that are buying our services today. Mm -hmm. So there are, I know, people that are buying cybersecurity services in the industry um, that we're not meeting at these events, and we're missing out on those opportunities because, frankly, we haven't done a great job of marketing ourselves outside of these this grassroots process that we've leveraged. So we've been looking at ways to create more content to broadcast that out ver- through the various different channels that exist. Um, but yeah, getting people to write content in our organization that they feel comfortable with distributing is very difficult. And having that become a consistent process on an ongoing basis uh, is next to impossible. But we had, to your question, we had a CEO that said, man, you guys are doing really great work. You have really interesting stories to tell. Can you please start creating some content and sending that out in some vehicle so that we can understand what you guys are up to uh, in between the visits that we get from you that are that are quarterly or, or in some cases annual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as, as you mentioned, that can be challenging within an organization, right? I, I like to make the analogy of joining the gym versus going the, to the gym. Really easy to join the gym, but when it's 530 in the morning in January and it's cold and you got to get out of bed or you could just roll over and maybe get another hour's sleep, you know, that sort of commitment and regular piece is is a lot more challenging, particularly because everyone in your organization has a full-time job that's not creating content in a structured manner, at least. I guess they hit the content snooze button, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, we have a marketing uh, person who helps us uh, build a content calendar. We make assignments. Uh, people pick topics they're interested in. But when it comes down to it, you always have a client need in, in the way. You always have uh, some other trip or workshop that's in, in, in the way. And so finding 
finding a way to manage creating that content on a consistent basis has been really a challenge for us. Yeah, not unlike a lot of businesses. I always like to get the CEO's perspective on marketing too, because as we sort of live in our marketing world, it's nice to get out of the bubble and, and we try to do that a lot. But you know, as the CEO, what do you measure? What metrics are important to you from a marketing perspective? So from a marketing perspective, um, right now, most of our metrics are focused on either monetary dollars. So, so what are the dollars that we're spending on our various different marketing activities? And what are the, uh, what are the returns that we're getting in there? So we have a lead qualification process and we look at specifically how many qualified leads are we getting out of each individual event for the most part? Cause we're still primarily event focused. So mm-hmm. we will measure that and. You know, what we're seeing recently, uh, for, for our services, they're often long-term contracts. And one of the challenges of measuring these, uh, various different, um, forms of marketing that we do is that in many cases, there are two and three year sales cycles. So we will meet someone at an event. They will express interest. We will continue to communicate with them for potentially up to two years until they engage and sign any meaningful contract uh, work with us. So being able to have those metrics last, frankly, beyond accounting calendars mm-hmm. um, can be somewhat difficult and challenging. Um, and also for us to uh, truly evaluate the uh, impact of a particular event uh, is difficult um, in a calendar year when you're hoping to plan, should we do this event again next right, year? Right. Uh, I don't know because in three years, this this may have paid off really well. So um, th- those are most of our, uh, m- you know, most of the things that we measure. We're, we're starting to do more with our blog and some of the just basic Google analytics and page visits um, as we redesign our, our website and, and some of the social media pieces that we're that we're working on. Yeah. And that's always tough in, you know, in a long sales cycle business to say, okay, do we, do we write a check to go to this event again? Do we sponsor something? Do we do this workshop when we don't know necessarily, you know, there's a two to three year runway before we might know if that worked or not? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That, that, that's one of our current challenges. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that we're talking about quite often. Um, and then also finding that balance, right. Of, so those are the things that we're doing that are Mm long-term. Um, what are some of the other activities that we can begin doing that, uh, may deliver more short-term results. And so we've recently seen some success. Uh, we've outsourced, um, lead generation to a cold calling, you know, email, um, service business, and they've been delivering more consistent results. So, uh, where they're identifying people who are in the act of buying and they're getting us into that short-term sales cycle. Um, so that has had, uh, it's, it's short, um, runway for us to look at, but so far so good. Yeah. And I think that's important too for businesses is to understand, okay, the face-to-face workshop is going to be high touch. It's going to be high value. It may be longer sales cycle, but it's also hard to scale. Right. right. So what are the other things that you may say, we may not get face to face as much, but we can scale it more. So as you talked about outsourcing things, kind yep. of like your business models and all <laughs> comes back around. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And we're constantly evaluating those. What is the right balance of all of those different activities? Yep. I think that's critically important too, is saying, okay, you know, we're doing a few things, which ones are performing, which ones do we need to maybe pull back on, which ones do we need to, to scale up? Shifting gears a bit, you guys went through a rebrand a few years ago. So before ThinkStack, you had another name. What kind of prompted that whole rebranding process? And if you want to kind of talk about how you did that. Sure. So 
It was a far more internally focused branding shift than it was externally focused, meaning uh, the driver behind the name change was employee driven, uh, not customer driven. So for us, what we found, and I think this is pretty typical of most startup businesses, is we got to about year four or five and we had seen uh, fairly consistent turnover. We had had a core group of employees that started with us, but for the most part, we were seeing a lot of other people come and go. And we were trying to understand better, you know, why that was happening. So the first thing we did was analyze the culture, analyze some of the feedback that we were getting from our employees. And the biggest piece of feedback that we got was a lack of understanding and clarity about where we were headed into the future and what type of people we wanted to bring in. So we needed to fix the story. You know, when you're a startup, everybody kind of just joins around the mission of growth and you didn't need to spend a lot of time figuring out how to tell your story. But as we were scaling the business and bringing in new people and bringing in new leaders, we had to have a more consistent story. And we just found that our name and our brand really had nothing to do with our story and where we wanted to go. Um, so we took an opportunity. That, so the, the process I thought was pretty cool. It was very collaborative. So we uh, hired a firm to help us, but we started with our employees. So before we did anything, we asked all of our current employees to go through brand archetype sessions, uh, brand personality sessions, and really participate in that to think about who we are, what makes us great, who we want it to be. We talked to our clients about some similar things. And then we brought all that information together and started to look at some brand names and, and some stories that would fit the feedback that we got from our clients and from our employees. So it was a really collaborative session. It wasn't like I sat down with a firm and I, you know, I just said, Hey, here's, here's our new name. It was something mm -hmm. that, um, the, the employees really rallied behind because they helped create it. And so it became part of our story. Um, and since that time, We've had almost 0% turnover um, and we've continued to really grow really strong culture inside of a space that is typically not, you're not finding that in technology and cybersecurity. You're finding a much higher rate of turnover. Um, but I think our brand and our culture are, are really to uh, you know, give them credit for that because I think that's been a huge driver in terms of why we've been able to be successful. That's great. And it sounds like you applied some of those design thinking concepts to Absolutely. your own approach of <laughs> rebranding, which, you know, Absolutely. As, as someone said to me recently, drinking our own champagne, which is way better than the old eating our own dog food. Yeah. Or, yeah. I, I mean, who drinks Kool-Aid, right? Is it really <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, yeah. I guess that's rosé today. I don't know. <laughs> rosé rose today. There you go. Jumping back to some of the marketing stuff, are there companies that you look at now that you think are doing a great job with marketing, particularly content, whether it's in your space or a different vertical, just companies where you go, wow, I really like this thing they did or something they do consistently or kind of who stands out? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I think in, in our space, I'd, I'd probably tell you some cybersecurity firms that you've never heard of. At, at a big picture, what I like in the cyber, if I look at cybersecurity marketing in general, what we see with cybersecurity marketing for most firms is that it's fear-based. And that really bothers me. It's, it's not to say that we shouldn't identify the fears that we all have around cybersecurity and breach, but I don't like when we exploit the feelings of cybersecurity fear and try to leverage that into selling a product. So what I've really liked is seeing people that are just better storytellers. And that's hard in cybersecurity because most people don't want to share their experiences about breaches sure, um, sure. with the public, right? Uh -huh. So, you know, trying to find effective ways to tell some of those stories can be challenging. 
But I think the storytelling method has been the most effective. So there's a couple companies that I think have done a good job of making the data and the stories generic through animation, through small videos, and using humor in cybersecurity to demonstrate how they fit in as a service offering you know, to those companies. And I think that has been a pretty powerful piece. And then probably the other piece, there's a couple people in the credit union space that do a really nice job of this, more around digital transformation, but there's a group called Best Innovation Group. Uh, there's a group called CU Engage, who I think do a really great job of leveraging LinkedIn to create uh, groups, um, to have meaningful conversations, in some cases that are semi-private, that allow people to maybe express their fears about cybersecurity in a forum that they feel is somewhat confidential um, and be able to tell those stories and find solutions um, to fix those things. So like these semi-private groups. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting is kind of serving as that forum or a kind of facilitator for those conversations for folks in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're trying. So we've tried to emulate that. Right. So some of the examples we've seen are more based on uh, member experience and web content and things like that. So people are, again, are a little bit more open to share, whereas with cybersecurity, we continue to be rightfully, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a little hesitant to to share, hey, I'm a financial institution and I just had this breach. Right. Um, right. But, you know, how can we give people a venue to uh, at least share their fears and understand different ways to solve those problems? We're balancing that. We have a LinkedIn group right now that we're trying to get people to open up a little bit. Um, so far, people haven't been all that willing to share. So we're looking at some different methods for that. Yeah, that's very interesting. A um, couple minutes we have left. Uh, technology in marketing. What tools do you guys use? What could you not live without? And maybe what's overhyped too? Wow, that was a three-part question. Yeah, no, that works. So, uh, so, so we're a Salesforce shop for our CRM. We use uh, Mailchimp um, to do you know a lot of email stuff that we blast out. We had dabbled with HubSpot for a while. Uh, I think it was a powerful tool. Frankly, we we weren't ready with any of our marketing infrastructure to, to leverage that. I mm-hmm. think someday uh, if we um, got a little more serious about our, our web marketing, that would be a really useful tool. But today we don't have the resources to do that. Very important to recognize that, by the way. A lot of people, yeah. you know, keep investing in it and then they blame the software when really maybe it's not the software. It's just you're not yeah. ready. So, yeah, uh, I think the overhyped one. And I'm sure this is different for different industries, right? I'm, I'm sure there are industries where it's relevant. But the chatbot thing is, frankly, it's getting annoying. Um, <laughs> and we so we tried it out for about six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are pretty familiar with the types of responses that you can create. And I love the people who sell it and they, they call it, quote unquote, AI and, and machine learning. I mean, you're just creating and if this, then that you know, scenario based conversation. And it's just not all that meaningful. So uh, to me, if you're going to have chat and let's put a person there. So again, it, at least for our industry, that's a little more service driven and a little more high touch. Um, you know, I, I think maybe if you're selling a product that that could be a useful tool. But for us, we tried it for a while and it really didn't work at all. Interesting. I always like to ask people as a closing question, just kind of a, a perspective thing, which is, you know, what would the Chris of today give as advice to an early career Chris? You know, what's the one thing you would say if I got in that DeLorean and hit 88 miles an hour and went back in time, I would tell Chris this thing. I have a, I have a long list of those things, but what <laughs> I'll say is probably the importance of culture. Uh, you know, and I think this is very true, at least in the startup stage, right? Which is 
most startup entrepreneurs are focused on the product or the service that they're delivering. Um, and they, they assume that the culture will, will come along with them. Uh, and the reality is that that's not true. Culture takes a tremendous amount of work and intention. And if you can do that and you can do it early on, it's something that can scale with you. Uh, it's way more difficult to do that as you're, uh, you know, in the middle of growth and in you're in, the, in, in the middle of serving your clients, uh, becomes very difficult to, you know, slam on the brakes, hit pause, redesign that and try to implement it. So being intentional about that from the moment you start, I think is something that I wish I would have done earlier on. Very good advice. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Really great to talk. Yeah. Thanks for having me.